0: (laughs) Hello. um, I'd like to to welcome you to this performance of Broke. Um, I'm Jenny Cooper. I work in the Law Department at LSE, and I'm on the advisory board of the Center for the Study of Human Rights. Um, This event is hosted by the Center for the Study of Human Rights, and it's an annual event that we have every year on the 10th of December, which is Human Rights Day. This year we're marking the 61st anniversary of the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Uh, so it's an auspicious day. Um, We are also holding this event in memory of Professor Peter Townsend who died in June of this year and uh, he had recently retired from LSE and was a sort of key figure in the Human Rights Center here. Um, He was a a very inspiring colleague and very inspiring person. I had the privilege of working with him due to our interest in children's issues, children's rights, Um, but Peter had been working since the 1950s as a sociologist. Um, He had worked on many, many issues, particularly focusing on poverty, but also the elderly, children, Uh, He had done a lot of work on the disabled, and he he was not only an academic, he was also a campaigner and helped to found the Child Poverty Action Group and also the Disability Alliance. So, you know, altogether an impressive person. And um, last year on this day, Human Rights Day, he was here um, arguing for the right to Social Security to be considered the most important human right. And I'm also very glad to be introducing this event because it's an unusual event for LSE. It's a performance, it's not a lecture. And I think it's it's very powerful to hear the voices of people themselves who have been affected by human rights issues. And it it can be much more rich and deep than, than just sort of looking at statistics. And uh, and I think the arts are actually a very, very powerful tool for human rights advocacy. So, uh, we will shortly be joined by um, the artistic directors of this company called Ice and Fire. And they are a performing arts company that deals with human rights issues. Um, But just before I introduce the artistic directors, um, to say that the performance will last about 50 minutes. And at the end, I just have one or two announcements, so please don't disappear immediately as soon as the performance is over. And um, so the artistic directors are Sarah Masters and Christine Bacon, and they will introduce the piece for you.
1: Thank you. Sorry, I'm just going to have to shift the microphone because I'm so much taller than everybody else. Um, Welcome to LSE. It's really, really nice for us to be here on International Human Rights Day. As Jenny said, I'm I'm Sarah Masters. I'm co-artistic director of Ice and Fire. And we're a theatre company that explores human rights stories through performance. It's also a really exciting day for us today because we're launching everyone has the right, which you should have all received a flyer for. And this is a new writing initiative that we are running in partnership with Amnesty International UK. And the idea of this project is for writers, of any playwrights out there who are writing plays that have got human rights stories at their heart. This is the natural home for those plays. And what we're doing, we're providing a platform for the best plays that have human rights stories at their heart, so professional readings will take place and writers will be put into development with a dramaturg to take their plays into long-term development. So please circulate this, any writers that you know, it's an open service, they send their scripts, they get feedback. So this is with Amnesty, we're very, very excited about that. And um, I know you're all here to see a performance, so I'll stop talking and I'll introduce Christine Bacon, who's the other co-artistic director of Ice and Fire, and the cast.
2: All right, here we go again. (laughs) Hello everyone, good to see you all here. I know it's the end of the year and uh, lots of things are going on and it is Human Rights Day so there are lots of events so it's great to see you here. Um, I am mostly responsible at Ice and Fire for running the outreach project called Actors for Human Rights. It's a network made up of over 450 professional actors who are dedicated to drawing public attention to a range of contemporary human rights concerns and recently we have been looking at uh, poverty, and homelessness and inequality in the UK. Um, more specifically uh, in the last few months we've been looking at it in London um, because we're working with uh, the City Parochial Foundation who are very interested in collecting these kind of testimonies from people living in London who are dealing with these issues. Um, so we have been interviewing people so what you'll hear tonight first-hand accounts. None of it is fictionalised in any way, Uh, none of it is embellished in any way, it's it's just what they said when we asked them some questions about what they were facing Um, and then obviously those interviews were edited down and put into the form of a script. What happens is we respond to requests so um, Zoe uh, at LSE asked us to come along tonight, which was fantastic, but um, we do these kind of readings three or four times a week sometimes, and we respond to requests from people all over the country, organisations all over the country, who are concerned about raising awareness, getting local people involved, getting, getting people to think um, more clearly about these issues and hear these voices that, that are often overlooked. So, without further ado... I will pass over to the cast um, who have given up their day to be here. It's brilliant to have them here. We have Louise Jameson, William Hope, James Benson, Oh, Aisha Kosako, and Catherine Green, um, who are great supporters of Actors Human Rights. I've also left some flyers uh, somewhere at the back. I think they were over there. Yes, down the back. Please do pick one up if you are connected to some sort of organisation or you think, yes, there is an audience for something like this you know, uh, in a network that I know of. So um, do get in touch with us. All the contact details are on this flyer. Okay, thank you very much. We give you broke, and uh, we hope to hear your feedback later. Thank you very much.
3: According to research conducted by the Joseph Tree
4: Foundation...
5: In the UK today, around a fifth of the total population... Lived in a household below the poverty line.
4: Income inequalities stand at historically high levels, and most people agree there is poverty in the UK. But 40% of the public can be termed poverty skeptics.
6: They either do not believe poverty exists, or are more likely to attribute it to laziness or lack of willpower than social injustice or even bad luck. 2.9
3: million children in the UK are living in poverty. 2.2 million pensioners in the UK are living in poverty.
5: 7.2 million working-age adults in the UK are living in poverty.
3: According
4: to the Office of National Statistics.
6: There has been a 91% increase in the retail price of gas
7: since 2003. And a 60% increase in electricity prices.
3: Housing, fuel and power accounts for almost one-fifth of spending in the UK by households at the bottom of the income distribution, compared to one-fourteenth for those in the top fifth.
5: At the minimum wage, a single earner in a couple family with two children would have to work almost 80 hours a week to avoid poverty through wages alone.
4: Over half of UK children living in poverty have one or both parents in work.
6: Chief Executive of Child Poverty Action Group, Kate Green.
4: Poverty
7: is poison. Our country has been sleepwalking back to the worst values of the Victorian era. I was born in
5: 1949 and grew up in a mining town in Cornwall. We were a big family, ten kids. At the time... It was expected of someone to get a girlfriend, get engaged, get married, get a house, have children. And I mean, I I wasn't ready for that. So, in 1971, at the age of 21, I joined the Royal Air Force, and I did my basic training. I enjoyed every minute of it. Got my first regular posting, which involved a lot of traveling. And a few years later, while still serving, I foolishly got married. It turned out to be a disaster after a few years, (laughs) but we all make mistakes. I wanted to go abroad with the RAF, but she was adamant that she wasn't going to travel with me, and for various reasons I won't go into, I made the decision that I would come out rather than put the marriage at risk. So, got a job driving lorries. We were married 23 years, and as part of the divorce, I had to sell the matrimonial home. I moved into a bedsit in Somerset, and after everything was sorted, I was left with about 1,000 pounds. Because of my age, and the fact that the country was in a deep recession at the time, I could only get temp work. All the bosses liked my efficiency, they trusted me, but because of company policy, they would not employ anyone over the age of 45. So, I eventually became unemployed. I was living on job seekers allowance and I found it difficult to pay all my household bills and my ex-wife was always in contact, wanting a reconciliation. I thought about going to my family, but I'd seen a lot of the world and I couldn't really cope with moving back to such a small-minded environment. So. One morning, I packed a shoulder bag with a change of shirts, some paperwork, and virtually nothing else. I posted the keys back to the landlord, got a bus to London, and arrived on the evening of June the 15th, 2001. It was a beautiful night, and I sat in Trafalgar Square, and this big Irishman says, You well, you're right, mate? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine.
6: Are you homeless? Well, as it happens, I am. So am I. Come with me, I'll show you a place to sleep tonight.
5: At that time, in front of the M.O.D. building near Embankment, there used to be about 25 wooden benches, and that was where I bedded down the first night and just kept sleeping there, for 18 months, until the M.O.D. had the benches removed. We were both born in London. In fact, I
6: was born in this very house.
3: Both our parents are Irish, but, but we were born here.
6: We met in an Irish club.
3: In Cricklewood, 1982, wasn't it?
6: Yep. <laughs> We've been married for 25 years. Six kids.
3: Three girls, three boys. Uh, that's two of them up there in their graduation gowns.
6: Back in our day, it was a lot harder to go through university. You had to have money, that sort of thing, you know. I left school. do not know what to do, you know. So, my main job I'd done for years was security. Must have been about 20 years I was there and I was made redundant. During that time I heard about this course that came up for teaching assistance so I thought well this is interesting because I like kids. And that's how I got into my present job, working with special needs children, ADHD, stuff like that. Which I've been doing, what, 10 years now.
3: I was a happy child up until the point when my father died. We were kind of left to our own devices because my mother was so wrapped up in her own grief. But we were lucky, we all turned out okay, didn't turn to drugs, anything like that. But I left school at 16, not really because I wanted to, but just because I did go through quite a tough time with with all the bullying and that. And I didn't like school I was in. I just couldn't wait to get away from it all. My first job was in a doctor's surgery, up until the point when I became pregnant and I brought up my children at home. That was my choice. I wanted to do that. I did go to college for two years. I did hairdressing, which is something I'd always wanted to do. I qualified and everything. But because of everything that's been going on, I'm finding it hard. I'm really low.
6: Yeah, at the moment, we have two addresses. We're not living together.
3: Yeah, I live down the road.
6: Your family had to split up.
3: Yeah, which was really awful for us. I live with my oldest daughter at my sister's and the rest of the children live with their dads.
6: Here, at my mum's place. It's been two years now.
3: My husband sleeps there every night, on the floor.
6: Which, literally on, on the floor.
3: Our 16-year-old's here.
6: Yeah, on the couch. Two little ones share a bed in with my mum. And my 19-year-old sleeps in that tiny room. My wife's sister has met someone now. She wants to move him in. She?
3: Mm, she's planning on getting married and buying a home and I really do feel in the way.
6: Yeah, when he stays you're on the floor, aren't you?
3: Well, I squeeze him with my daughter in, into a really tiny bed.
4: Before I was diagnosed, this was in 1996, I had plans, good plans, who I wanted to be. I wanted to be a nurse and went to St Pancras Hospital and I work as a healthcare assistant. I loved it so much, and I learned so much. I can dress, I can change a catheter, I participated in drama for the patient, acting for them. They used to love it, storytelling. I wanted the whole well-being of the patient. I washed them, dressed them, did manicure, blow-dry their hair. They looked beautiful. I did NVQ1, NVQ2, but it wouldn't let me be a professional nurse, so I thought I must get my training. I enrolled for a course to get qualified, and then I became pregnant. I was about, I think, mm, two months into my pregnancy when I went for my antenatal checkup. They said I would need a blood test for HIV. I said, yes, of course, go ahead. After two days, they called me in. And I was so worried because they treated me so special. Normally I have to wait for a long time in the queue. They took me into the side room and the nurse said that they had found that I was HIV positive. I said, what? What is HIV? How do you get this illness? What is it? She said, oh, it kills. I said, oh, the baby. And she said, it's up to you about the baby. I just felt like the whole world had collapsed around me. I said, where did I get this thing from? I don't do drugs. I've never had a major operation. I'm married. I've never had any other boyfriends. Where where is this thing coming from? I thought of my parents. I thought of everything they believed in. We are Christians. And this is supposed to be for certain people like prostitutes, not normal people who are brought up properly. I thought, God, what have you done to my family? I just ran out of the clinic. I just ran. I don't know where I was going. I just ran. I kept on running. Uh, They sent somebody to follow me and bring me back to the clinic. Someone said to me, why don't you go and ask your husband where you think this has come from? I went home. He was sitting watching TV. I was hysterical, just blurted out. They found out I was HIV positive. You brought death to me. You've cut my life short. You've got to go to the clinic and get yourself checked. So he said, you know when my dad was sick and I went to Uganda and stayed for almost a year? I said, yes, I know. Well, during that time, he met this woman and he had a one-off stun thing. I'm not narrow-minded. I know men do things, but I also know men protect their wives. I said, you are not in the 18th century when there is nothing. You're in the 21st century. Well, (laughs) it was the 20th century because it was 1996. He just said, I'm so sorry, so sorry, forgive me. He begged for forgiveness. I did love him because he did have his good parts. I gave up my country for him. I came to this country for my sister, you see, as she was sent by the Zambia government to do a her PhD here. And then we were meant to go back, but I met him. He was the first person to show genuine interest in me and genuine respect for me. That's one thing I thank him for. But in the end, we separated.
7: I'm 45 and have lived the majority of my life in Bow in London. My upbringing, well, I was adopted at 18 months old and the parents I got, I I couldn't have wished for better. Really lovely people. But, you know, we wasn't rich or anything. If I'm quite honest, I was naughty at school. I didn't attend when I should have. I regret it now. I just couldn't really settle, you know? I just went there and had a laugh with my friends, but... Like I said, obviously, I, I really do regret it. I got a job in a boutique, then in a handbag manufacturer, then I worked in a peanut factory. I met my children's dad there, actually, a fork truck driver. We used to go round to the same calf for lunch. We were together for 18 years, on and off. We had two kids, two boys. He was a womanizer basically a real charmer first time he left me was on the day that my elder boy was born he sent me a dear john letter at the hospital with his mum i'm not ready yet you know i need time i was devastated i even had the nurses in tears then we were backwards and forwards you know i lost all my confidence I didn't think anybody else would be interested. I mean, I loved him at the end of the day. Then I had my second son with him. I brought up my boys as best as I could. He never helped me financially, I, I, I never t- took him to court or anything, you know, I just wanted a peaceful life. Sod his money, that's how I felt, you know. I just want you to see your sons promising fun for the children, saying he's going to turn up. i get them ready. They'll be waiting, crying at the window, spotting all the red cars coming along. In the end, I just said to him, you've hurt me enough, and I'll be damned if I'm going to let you hurt my, my boys. You stay out of their life.
5: Being on the street now in my late 50s, I've realised there's no point in me chasing high-profile jobs. One, I have no skills. Two, my age. Reality dictates that I'm not going to get a decent job. Except maybe as a road sweeper. But the sort of wage that would pay would not allow me to pay my rent or pay the bills. I've been in that position before and the thought of the anxieties and sleepless nights involved with the low income convinced me that my street life was a better alternative than having to wrestle again with low income and rising prices. (coughs) I'll bed down about 9, 10 at night, and because I'm very habitual, I will always be awake at 5 or 6 in the morning. So by 6.30, I'm God, no trace of me being there. By the time the city awakens in the morning, like other street homeless people, I'm on my feet, facing another day. The last seven years I've been on the street, I've not claimed any welfare benefits. I've never begged, I don't do drugs, and I only drink socially in public bars. Money has been given to me by people who pass me in the street in my doorway, or I pick up loose change on the street. I have a regular sleeping place in the City of London, Fleet Street. And people get accustomed to seeing me there. Office workers coming in from work at night or on occasion they have a drink after work, have a good day or whatever, and they say, there you go, mate, there's ten pound. That's basically how I live. Well, I'd never live in a hostel, even if they paid me. You know, there are people on the streets with a mental illness of some degree of severity, and there are drug dealers, drug users, and there are many alcoholics. When you put all those people under one roof, it's a recipe for violence, theft, antisocial behaviour of all description, and I did not want to be exposed to that sort of behaviour, or to be the victim of that behaviour. I mean, the pressure to live in a hostel is very, very high. The outreach works are constantly trying to put us into these places. But over the years, outreach workers have patted me on the back, said, Don't blame you for a minute. Off the record, of course. After I'd been on the street maybe more than 12 months, I started becoming disturbed at the things I was seeing in the homelessness sector. Clothes, for example that were being donated to various organisations, were being taken in and resold at a very low price. But the principle seemed wrong to me. It's as though the system wanted to teach us that nothing comes free. There was also the problem in those early years of people being released from prison with nowhere to go, just being given a travel pass and being told literally, go to London. They arrive in London not knowing what to do, where to get a meal, where to get advice, nothing. And in many cases, I know this from first-hand experience, ex-offenders have re-offended so they can go back to prison. One of my biggest criticisms of the state-sponsored services is the way that a lot of the paid staff members are so arrogant and rude to homeless people Some of them have a huge superiority attitude. I know how to take care of myself, and I don't want to be spoken down to or patronised by someone who thinks they know what is best for me. I have control over my life. If If that does not fit in with the political desires of the day, then so be it. Homelessness is not a crime.
6: How it all happened was, I started this job at a school and I let Housing Benefit now and I mean they stop it straight away, takes ages to get back on, it's, it's a huge hassle. And my hours went up and down because the child I was working with made progress, they, they don't need me as much. I said to the head, I said, this has got to be the only job in the world where you do a good job, your hours get cut. And then eventually went to full-time, so again I went to the housing benefit, filled in all the forms with the wage slips. They kept writing back saying, we haven't received your wage slips, this went on for ages. But I paid what I was told to pay, Then they reviewed me and they said, you're not entitled to housing benefit, you shouldn't have been last year. So straight away, it was like half a year to pay back, plus the following year's one.
4: And when we
3: first got married, we did think about buying a flat in Acton. We had a deposit to put down. People put us off it. Yeah, yeah, they said, what about when you've got children and you won't be able to keep the mortgage up? We were very young and we just went along with their. uh, I mean, it's something that I really, really regret. It was so cheap back then. I mean, it was a, a one-bedroom for 8,000, wasn't it? Something yeah. like that. Something really ridiculous. Yeah, and
6: you had... Well,
3: I had 4,000 pounds to put down on it at the time. So, that was a really big mistake.
6: Yeah, In the early days, we had one-bedroom place, we had three children. It was
3: ridiculous. Ended up being four children then. The environmental officer actually came round and measured up the rooms and said that it was okay to live like that. I just couldn't believe it. Eventually, after a long fight with the council, we got a move.
6: Yeah, and when things started getting really bad, I was the only person working. I had two children at university, my wife at college, you know. I mean, my income was not that much, about a thousand a month. I was coping, more or less. And the
3: kids were well clothed and fed.
6: And you get a bit of help, like working tax credit. We're in a normal week, it's enough to live on, yeah. But then the cooker breaks down, the fridge, the beds, and what happens is, the better children do, the more expensive it becomes. Like, our son comes, I've got a geography field trip, I need 85 quid. Well, if he doesn't do it, he can't pass the course. They haven't got the computer. I mean, we pay a pound of time at the internet gaffes. Doesn't seem a lot, but it's every day, and the printing's hundreds of pages. A load of things happened. Rent arrears, council tax. We got into a lot of debt. We used to go to meetings and say to them, look, this is starting to get serious now. Just give us time, but they took us to court. I've never been in trouble with the law. Neither of us have. I was terrified. I've never been to court in my life. Frightened the life out of me. Got no help, no advice from anyone. And in court I just stupidly agreed. I said, yeah, I can pay the rent and a hundred quid on top. And the judge, if he was clever enough, he could see my wage slips there. He would have known I couldn't afford it without starving the kids. I mean, two-thirds of my wage was going on rent. Then I was brought back to court a second time. The first judge, he was quite understanding. This one was not. He wouldn't have any of it. He was saying, there's no guarantee they'll get jobs. I said, my son might be getting a job in finance. At the moment, I've got my wife and a hairdresser's course, two people at university. I said, just, just wait until the summertime. We'll have four wages coming in. I mean, my story's not going to change. I'm not going to get a massive rise. I'm not going to change my job. I can't rob a bank. My daughter was there, and she said, I'm, I'm, I'm two-thirds of my way through. I've got this last little bit to go. He wouldn't have any of it bloody evicted us
3: I didn't realize how much in debt we were in to be honest with you I really didn't have a clue yeah
6: we had two weeks to get out
3: that was a really low point
6: we uh, we went to citizens advice for help they frightened the life out of us They said by law they only have to house children under a certain age so in other words They might take your children off you.
3: Well, that's what stopped us from seeking further help, and we decided to live like we were for now. It's
6: it's a nightmare. I mean, my mum's she's elderly.
3: I, um, I'll get up at 6 o'clock, take my children to school. Then I meet my husband, and we do the shopping, pick up the kids, and then we just really try...
6: Keep out of the way.
3: Yeah, yeah, for as long as possible. I
6: mean, we come here at half-seven at night, and the rest of the time we're always out, just, just to keep the peace. This is where a lot of our money's going now because we're out all day long. I mean I'm lucky I've got a job, but my wife's walking the streets wouldn't know where to go.
3: Do you know what I mean? In the evening I help the children do their homework and um, Well, then I have to leave, go down the road to my sisters.
6: The worst thing for any mother is saying goodbye to her children. You know, at, at night having to leave them. They wake up sick, have a nightmare, she's not there. I mean, Dads are good. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, I mean, I do my best. But to me, you can't replace your Mum. Especially my daughter, she's, she's 11.
3: She's going through puberty. She really, she gets a bit emotional. Sometimes she wants me here, and I used to like to cuddle up to her in bed, you know, until she went off to sleep. But obviously, I, I can't do that anymore.
6: Well, there's no married life as such, you know what I mean?
3: It causes arguments. It does cause arguments between us.
6: Yeah, but Saturday's our family day, isn't it? Mum goes to the bingo, so we have three hours together. We're all at home. We've got to run at the place,
3: haven't we? Don't get on with my mother-in-law. I don't speak to her anymore, so there's a lot of friction. Because I feel like she doesn't want the children to be children. Every little noise they make, she's telling them off, shouting at them. And as a mother, it, it gets my back up. But it's not my work, not my home. She's back in about half past three, so, so we've got another hour to talk to
6: you. You have to walk on eggshells. I
3: have to bite my tongue all the time.
6: We don't uh, cry around the kids. We can do our crying in bed, you know.
3: I don't want my children seeing me cry. You know, because they've always been such happy. They're well-balanced children, and and that's the way I want it to remain. Yeah, Christmas is not
6: the same now.
3: No, it was always my favourite time of year. And to think that I'll be at my sister's get... It's just... It's just so depressing.
6: Yeah, but summer's not so bad, is it? The park's really
3: great. I'm at such a low now. I can't...
6: Yeah, but so what happened then was we went to the, uh, to the homeless people part of the council and they arranged for someone to call on a certain Monday and she wanted to see all of us. So we all took time off, work and school, including my wife's sister, her daughter. Our meeting was 9 o'clock, so 9 o'clock came, went, 10 o'clock came, went half past 10. So we phoned them up, we said, oh, sorry, she had an accident. So we should have phoned you.
3: She hurt her finger.
6: I said, well, we've all just taken a day off work, the kids are off school, people will go mad. It's not just us. It's my wife's sister, her daughter, my mum. They said, oh, we don't need to see them. We just need to see you and your wife.
3: After all this and keeping them off school, which is what I was really against anyway.
6: So when she came, she didn't, you know, look around anywhere, just asked a few questions. My wife started crying. She's sitting there with a smirk on her face. It was
3: just a mockery. No empathy at all.
6: <sighs> she said, oh, I'll send you a letter about applying for a crisis loan. So we applied and she should have known this. They don't give money for our kind of crisis. So that was a complete waste of time. And we got a letter from the court saying they'd up the arrears and there were extra legal fees. I mean, they know perfectly well. We haven't got any money. They add another 60 or 90 pounds to the arrears. And that
3: was the help we got. Extra money added to the bill.
6: Yeah, so we thought. Our only options now to go to the MP. Karen Buck, who, she's, she's an
3: amazing woman. Yeah, brilliant, I thought.
6: Yeah, she's brilliant. You know, when we told her about the situation, she had a tear in her eye. And she said, that should never happen. They should be keeping families together. She said no one should be evicted for arrears. Drugs, prostitution, yeah, that sort of thing. Or
3: if you're neglecting your children. Yeah, neglect. Which we've done, done, done none, none of that. And they can see that we're a hard-working, good family.
6: Check our police records, there's nothing there. And yet we're
3: being punished for that. You know, in some countries you even get paid for bringing up your children.
6: Yeah, so she wrote a letter to the council and they wrote back saying, a load of bloody lies. First, they said that our case file had been destroyed in a fire. Then they said, I never turned up to the meetings, which is a lie. How uh, they'd advised me, they never advised me. They never, ever advised me. When I went to meetings, it was only threats that I got. And They said they didn't get social services involved because my youngest child was 14.
3: Just a nine-year-old. I mean, she was seven then. They wanted to put us a bed breakfast at one point. And I really didn't want to do that to the children because I, I think we'd just be left there to rot. If you're not working,
6: they pay it. But it costs so much money they get fed up with it. But I'm working, so I'll have to pay it, won't I? We could be there years. I mean, we're a big family as well. They can't guarantee they can keep us together. So it would be two in Victoria, two somewhere else, you know. Plus, I mean, where is all our stuff going to go?
3: We tried to go private as well, didn't we?
6: It's all alike, you know. It's like £2,000 up front. And references.
4: When I was diagnosed, it shattered everything. I hate it. I'll never get used to it. But it's part of me. It's a twin that never leaves you. I explain it like I am explaining it to you, and it hits me again. My mind was like, I'm a patient now. I can't look after another patient and the nature of the illness. I can't be a nurse injecting people in case I prick myself. I have a passion for nursing, a passion for caring. I've had it since I was a child. But then all my inspiration, my motivation went. They gave me incapacity benefit, and I didn't even know what an incapacity benefit was. I was just given that money, and I was so thankful as I had nothing, really nothing. At that point, me and my husband had separated, but we were living under the same roof. It took a long, long time until they find me accommodation, which is where I'm staying now. After a while, I decided to do something to increase my opportunity to go back to work. For me, this is important. Although I'm getting older now, still I have to achieve that. I want to do that. I think maybe I'll live a little bit longer. So, I went back to college and they said that they won't pay for my first year, but for my second and my final year. I applied for a student loan and it came, and I paid the whole thing to the school. It was this time that the housing benefit came to assess me. The man came in, I told him everything and they wrote to me that I've got some overpayment and that I didn't declare them so that I was a student, I didn't declare that I was a student on one of my benefit forms. At the time I fill out the form, I didn't know I was going back to college. They gave me a caution and at that point I felt like I had been treated as a criminal. The whole system was too much for me. I didn't understand any of it. Overpayment, what for? The money was not coming to me, it was going to the housing benefit. They said they had to stop the housing benefit because now I'm a student and I'm getting the loan, but I gave it to the school for the fees. They said I had to pay the rent, the bills. Hmm. So many bills. So many. I was, I was struggling. Even basic things like toilet tissue. It's a worrying thing. Kids, make sure you don't use the toilet tissue for your nose. One day we'll use our hands. <laughs> I'm not out of that situation. I'm still in that situation. I receive child tax credit and child benefit monthly and money from the student loan every four months. After bills and fees and rent, I am left with 300 pounds per month for me and my two children to live on. You can't stop people and children eating. I can't go in the streets and start begging. I keep thinking I'm not gonna make it. I try to make good food. I try to eat like things like baked beans. I get a bit of fiber from them. My daughter, is really into fashion now I can't buy anything trendy for her she's very talented she's got a much greater chance of being somebody in the future socially she needs to look presentable and sometimes the child benefits goes on what she wants so she feels special so I can help her not to be emotionally damaged her brother is the same but in sports gifted and talented in sports I think, if I think of that, all my problems disappear momentarily.
7: I know there's many people out in the world that's so much worse off than me, but it's hard. I'm back to square one and on my own. When the kids were old enough, I'd done little bits and pieces, cleaning, I worked on a store for a while. Right at the moment I'm in the process of looking for work. I've got no qualifications and the jobs that I do look for in the paper are just, well, you need qualifications, you know, and to be younger. But I, I do want to get back in, in the world. What I receive, my income, is £120 a fortnight. I fell into council tax arrears, rent arrears, ended up being a £1,000. I was getting water bills in, gas bills, then the electric and I I just couldn't cope with everything. I just never saw a light at the end of it. Then I came home one day and I had a letter saying that the bailiffs would be back the next day unless I phoned to make the full payment. I phoned them up and I was in a right state.
5: Right, you can pay 95 pounds.
7: I just about get that a fortnight. Well, not our problem. How am I meant to live? How am I meant to keep a a roof over my head, pay my bills? Not our problem. Look, you you don't understand. I'm willing to pay, but I can only pay a small amount. If you
5: don't arrange over the phone to pay this 95 pound, we will come back tomorrow to take some of your goods.
7: So I I had to agree to pay the 95 pounds on the following week, just to keep them away from my door, until I sorted out what I'd do. Then they charge me for visits and van fees. They're they're so intimidating and frightening. They, They just didn't give a damn. I was scared to open my door. Because if you open that door and they put one foot over that door, they're in. And there isn't anything you can do. You're scum and that's how they look at you no matter what age. If they treat me like that 45, I would hate for them to treat an elderly person like that or or a young lady who's got children. I'm not going to sit here and say that I want them to wipe my debt, but be a bit more understanding about people and the income they have. If they're only paying a bloody pound a week, allow that because you're offering something. You're not saying, sod you, I'm not going to pay and I don't want to pay. That's not my attitude. I got myself into the mess and I'll get myself out of it.
5: There are many layers of homelessness. For many, their homeless experience lasts about two or three months before they're resettled. And then there are some guys who have been on the street 30-odd years. Generally speaking, they've been non-drinkers, non-drug users, and many cases, you would pass them on the Strand or on Oxford Street and you would not know they were homeless. If anything gives them the way, it's their backpack. I sat around on many rainy days, listening to their stories and it began to occur to me, there's a great injustice going on here. And I slowly began to speak out. When I started to query a few things, I found that not only the local authorities but even the church and charitable groups were shutting doors in my face. There was a particular charity with a turnover at the time of over a million pounds. I asked politely what proportion of that turnover was actually being spent on street homeless people in the ways of beverages and food. I was answered with an uncomfortable air of silence. And within two weeks of asking that simple question, I was cold-shouldered by the director of the charity and made to feel unwelcome at their open house hospitality events. I'm not saying I expect handouts of cash, but the money that's poured in at the top end is absorbed in the middle ground by third parties. I call it an industry. The homeless industry. Another example, one guy who was on the street for many years decided he was going to move into a flat. He went through the process which was totally frustrating and eventually when he was offered accommodation the people from the housing authority turned up, the agency that was representing him turned up but he didn't turn up for the simple fact that no one had notified him that he should have been there. When he eventually got the keys, he found himself living in a bare flat. No furniture, curtains, carpet, fridge, the electricity was turned on, and he was sleeping in a sleeping bag on the concrete floor. He felt totally isolated, abandoned, and the system didn't seem to care. Now, if you look at it, statistically, that guy is a success story! But if we look at the individual, I wouldn't call it a success. Maybe I'm not perfect, but what's so wrong with my behaviour? The majority of guys I've known over the last five or six years are not violent. They're not on drugs. They're just living their lives on the street. In many cases, they don't want to go indoors. They just want to be left alone. They're quite content to live their lives the way they are, but the system is trying to squeeze us all into one mould. Maybe sometimes the politics behind it may be well-intentioned. People shouldn't be living in doorways. I would agree with that in the broad sense. But for someone to be isolated in some flat without social contact, a pittance of an income and no furniture, it seems to me that the present system can accommodate the flesh of the homeless person, but it does not accommodate the spirit. Overall, Joe Public, I have great admiration for them. They accepted the fact that I was homeless, left me alone. There are some that give you, don't Why don't you get a job? Why don't you get a life? You bloody junkie, you bloody tramp. I was used to all that. If only they knew. If you must look down on someone, do so with the intention of helping them back up.
6: So the uh, state of play now is our uh, MP Karen Buck sent us to an organization, deals with extreme cases and we meet regularly with them. We put my appeal in, they turned it down, miraculous, when we went to the appeal our file that was supposed to be burned in the fire appeared. Mm -hmm. So now my wife's just put in an
3: appeal. It's medical reasons now, my health has been, well I, um, I was born with a heart murmur but the stress of all this is just making it worse. I'm getting terrible pains across my chest. My, my health is suffering because of it all. Yeah, mine as well. Depression.
6: i got psoriasis covered, head to foot in psoriasis. It's
3: always scratching.
6: Yeah, I spent two weeks going to the hospital to get treatment. Treating is a waste of bloody time. Once it clears, it's back again. It's, it's, it's stress-related.
3: I'm used to being, um, you know... I, I never sit still. I'm one of these people that, that I'm on the go all the time. I find it difficult to um, direct that energy.
6: Yeah, with the kids, they're really happy though, yeah, aren't they? yeah,
3: they're really upbeat. They keep me sane. They do. If it wasn't for my children, I don't know where I'd be, honest. They've never, ever blamed us for this, ever. We say we're looking for a nice home for you with a garden, and we just leave it at that they don't need to know it's not necessary
6: yeah the kids Mm. they get invited to their friends houses you know
3: but they can't invite their friends and and i feel really terrible because i don't want to have to explain the reasons to their parents it's too personal or even if they met you know a boyfriend it would be really difficult because how would they you know (laughs) bring them home introduce them to us well
6: Sometimes some of the parents have fallen out with you, haven't they? Mm -hmm.
3: The thing is, I can talk to the parents at school, but apart from that, I, I, I can't say, would you like to...
6: Come for a coffee? Yeah,
3: yeah, coffee or a tea.
6: Well, you get invited over a lot, don't you? Yeah,
3: but I say no, I can't. I have to keep saying that Because
6: you go to their house, they would have come to your
3: house. People can be quite judgmental without knowing the full story.
6: Yeah, we don't tell anyone about this.
3: Well, only our immediate family knows. We're private people. We hate all this.
6: There's a lot of help out there when you're not working. When you are working, you're, you're punished, in a way. I mean, I might be wrong, you know, but that's what it seems to me. I mean, I'd never stop working but maybe if I lost my job I wouldn't have lost lost my home. Do you know what I mean? I know they they've got to make money because of the recession, whatever, but the threshold when people have got to start paying rent it has to be taken into account. How many children have you got? If You, you
3: understand? Our children have gone on to do really well and, and sometimes I feel like we're penalised, like, for having a big family. It's like, you know, living off the government, you, you're labelled as being lazy and what have you but I feel like I've done a really good job in rearing my children and that is hard work I, I mean there are probably some mothers that are lazy and sit at home drinking and, and watching Jeremy Kyle and, and having cups of coffee all day but, but I'm not one of them
1: <laughs> uh,
6: she does so many jobs around the place I mean she's better than any man <laughs> she, she puts curtains up she does the drilling she could lay a wooden floor, she's great she puts me to shame. Funny story, once we got married, uh, we bought some bunk beds, and they arrived, and I was nearly crying me eyes out. I mean, millions of pieces of wood, this little piece of paper the size of a matchbox. Instructions. My wife says, get out, take the kids out, leave it to me. And
3: in my head, I'm thinking,
6: how the hell am I going to put this together? I mean, instructions, <laughs> that size, all little bits in bobs. But she done it. She done it. Yeah. See,
4: I told you, she said. But I'm moving forward. I'm not working, but I'm doing voluntary work. Once you're qualified, nothing will stop you making a move. It's something I can control. Incapacity benefit, I have no control. If they want to stop, they stop. I can't say nothing. I can't do nothing. I can only cry so hard because my kids won't eat. There won't be any school uniform. In my last year of college now, I'm in my last year of college now, and I feel happy, but also worry. At the end of this, am I going to get a job? Is there a job out there? We hear so much about companies shutting and people are being made redundant. Every person's situation needs to be assessed very seriously, because they don't know how much damage they are doing with the weight of their decision. They take away people's means of living and being productive, but they don't replace them with anything. So you become non-functional and more of a burden. And at the job center, they degrade you further. Why do you want to claim job seekers Allowance? These job centers, you never get anywhere. Instead of helping, they make things harder. I've always wanted to say something about this situation, but I never had the chance because I didn't know how to say it. So I'm glad that I had the chance to say what I have to say today, and I hope people hear it. Provident and
7: people like that, the doorstep lenders, I've used them before. At the time, you see it as a way out. Honestly, it it really is easy when you're in a desperate situation to see money signs and think, I've solved one problem but really it's just making 10 more. At heart, I'm a happy-go-lucky girl. I'm happy, bubbly. But to be honest, I can't remember the last time I had a good laugh. I'm always stressed. And when I go to bed at night, I think, what's gonna drop through my door tomorrow? I don't go out, I can't afford it. I I think the last time I went out was in May. And that was to my friend's funeral. I'm saying that that was the last time I went out and had a drink. I imagine my life would be very different, so different. I would, I would meet someone like, settle and, and have help. and Not no one rich, but well, you know, if you have a problem, someone would say to me, D- don't worry, we'll see and get you sorted. I will meet you halfway a shoulder to cry on if you like. I will be rich I'll never be rich, but I'd love to get to a point where I can say, "You know what I've paid my bills last week and this week. I can go out for the day or or go out with my friends and have a good night i would I would love my life to be like that right now it's hard to see a way ahead I'm in this Humdrum. I can't get out of it. It's not because I don't want to. I know it's hard and you have to work. Earn your money and work for it. I understand that.
3: I'm not an envious person. All I want is just a home for my family to live in and that's not a lot to ask or anything.
6: As I said before, uh, back in our time, you couldn't get an education. You had yeah, to have money. But now, because of Tony Blair and his government, is given the likes of our kids from working class families a chance to go to university and prosper. I mean, they've got brains. It's great. But there did come a time for us when it was uh, shall we support our kids to do this or pay the rent?
3: Every few months we're saying, are we going now? It'll be soon. It'll be soon. And it never is. Then we said October, and now we're into November. If you told me two years ago that I would be homeless like this with my children separated from me, I would have said no. (laughs) You're lying.
6: I don't want to use this as an excuse. But when there's children involved, I thought that at least they would not throw them out. Think and think about their welfare. We could have been turned out in the street and a council or the court, but they
3: wouldn't have cared less. No, it was like they were throwing us on a scrap (laughs) heap.
5: Recently, my circumstances changed. The company I worked for disappeared at some time in the last 20 years. I got on the internet and with the help of trade unions I managed to locate a company who could help me find my pension. I now have a small monthly income payable to me and I've applied for local authority housing which should materialise next month. Now that my future is secure it would be easy for me to say, why should I bother even doing this interview? But there's still a great deal of injustice going on out there. there on the streets. So if I can get enough people to sit up and understand what these guys are going through, then I've achieved something. Street living is not an easy option, as some would have you believe. The reality is that for many homeless people, living on the streets is the only option. Finally, if this does make it to the stage, I would just like to take this opportunity to express my gratitude to all the people out there that are involved in the voluntary sector for the homelessness. Without you, the entire system would grind to a halt and to all those people that volunteer with the charities and on the soup runs and all the good people in the churches you all have first-hand face-to-face contact with homeless people I would like to thank you all from the bottom of my heart and assure you that you are playing a very vital role in what you are doing not just for feeding and talking to the homeless but also by restoring our faith in society. Thank you, all and all. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening tonight. <clears throat>